0: be reading Romans 7 verses 15 through 24. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. I hate, and I do what I do not want to do. I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do, nor the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I have found this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank you, Marianne. Whoops. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good morning.
1: So, sorry. to fix everything. This doesn't stay on the easiest, so. <laughs> Gotta get it just right, <laughs> and then it's good. Okay. So, as Marianne read that, how many of you sure all of us at one point or another said, yep, he's talking about me. I mean, that that sounds exactly like me, what Paul is saying there. Now, I don't know if you noticed, Patty, could you go to the slide? Just one of those slides, whatever one. Nope. One back, back. So as you read these two slides, uh, you might have noticed if you were looking at this that I have one word highlighted throughout the passage, and that's the word I. So it's in bold, but you really can't, it doesn't pick up near as well on that big screen, so you probably all missed it. But Paul uses the word I 22 times in this passage. 22 times. So trying to be clever, which I never should, um, <laughs> doesn't work very well. I titled this message Paul and the proper use of pronouns. Now I do not mean that in any way like you know the, the discussion on pronouns in our world at this moment. However, Romans is a letter of pronouns. It is all it is built the entire letter on pronouns. It is crucial to understanding Paul and what he is doing. He uses pronouns in this letter, and just think about these little tiny words, in a powerful way to communicate his message to the people in Rome. It's brilliant, it's genius, and it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is so simple what he does, yet so profound, that it is relevant. His use of pronouns in this book, this letter, it's it's relevant to every people throughout history. There is not a people or time in history that what Paul does doesn't speak directly into their lives. I'm going to stick this on here so it doesn't get in the way. So now, Patty, if you would go to the next slide. So here's where, oops, what's the next slide? There, I must have put those in backwards. <laughs> that's the one I want. Maybe I go. Oh yeah, that's fine. So here's what Paul has been so far. Um, first, we have, if we go back through the messages, in uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul specifically only uses they and them. So he, and again, remember, he's talking about those people. And, and, and we, I'm not going to go back through everything we said about that, but I'm going to move that. And, um, but every people throughout history every people group, have had a they and them. Everyone here has a they and them. People who are the other, who are not us, not me, and usually they're the bad ones, the ones we don't want to be like, the ones we are not. And then in chapter 2, he exclusively uses the word you and you all and here what he's doing is he's pointing out to those who are using the word they and them that they better stop because he's pointing out their issues and sometimes things need to be pointed out and then you recall in chapter 5 he switches it to solely using we, and us language. And what he's doing there is he's trying to tell. So in in Rome, the, you know, the Christians are kind of divided over different theological and practical issues. Ah, uh, it's like always. Yeah, I he'd bring it up, but for those in ministry, the pandemic was like a playground for Christianity, where. Little kids are choosing sides. Now, maybe maybe you didn't experience that, but anyone in ministry, that was their complete experience of it. Choosing sides. And that's what's going on in Rome, and Paul's saying, you're all on the same side here. Okay, there's Serious disagreements about some issues, but so what? You are on the same side. That's whose side are you on? Jesus. And now he goes into I and me language. So he's kind of run full circle here. And <coughs> The resources I've been reading and the different uh, theologians and Bible scholars as I study to prepare for this, all, every one of them has said that this little passage we just read is the most disputed passage in the Gospel of Rome in the Bible scholarly world. And we're sitting there thinking, "Huh? Uh huh? This. Why? I mean, Romans has so many disputed passages. There's passages about same-sex sexual relations, same-gender sexual relationships. There's passages about um, capital punishment. There's passages about predestination. This one? And, And, you know, every single scholar reads it. Most disputed. Most disputed. And Partly, we probably look at this and we think, well, how could that be? Pat, if you would go back one slide now to what should have, where I put in the wrong one. There you go. Is that we relate to this so well. We think, well, this makes all the sense in the world. I mean, look at it. It says, from that which I am doing, I do not understand. Anyone here? I mean, don't raise your hand. Yes. That's what I say when I read it. I say, yes. Okay. Gets me here. I do not, uh, I, for I am not practicing that uh, what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And then 19, for the good I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish to do. We've all been there at times. If you have never been there, more power to you. Mm-hmm. And this sermon is going to be really boring for you. You're not going to understand or relate to it at all. So, what is the dispute you ask? Yeah, I see head shaking. Two big questions. Is Paul writing about his pre conversion experience as a Pharisee under the law? Meaning that, and there's a whole side that says this is not about Christians. This is not the Christian experience. There's an entire side, and they have good arguments and some holes.
0: <laughs>
1: the other side is Paul is talking about his current experience as a Christian. And, and we feel that because we get what he's saying here. And there are some good arguments, but there are some holes. And of course, like I always say, it could be both, a little bit of each. But here's what I would say. There's a third option. And, And this is debated, but there are many who hold this option also. And the answer to the third option is not this side, that side, or both, but no. The answer is no to the question, meaning Paul is not talking about any of that, meaning he's not talking about himself. <coughs> and this, now he says, wait a minute, he says I 22 times. Well, many believe what Paul is doing is, it, it's a rhetor- rhetorical device that was very common in the ancient world of, of Rome in the Greek language. And writers would use this all the time. It was called speech and character, meaning that it's writing, the writer takes on the character of someone else, whether real, a real person, or a fictional person who represents a group of people. And so most, and I would say most, this is not a small belief think that's what Paul's doing here. He he did it in another passage. Done, he does it several times. First Corinthians 13. We all know love is patient, love is kind. What's how does he begin that? He begins it with if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, if I deliver my body to be burned, is he talking is that what he's doing? No. He's talking about a specific group of people. So for me, this is my best understanding of this. There's disagreement, but to simplify, here's what I think he's doing. Any, he's saying this, anyone who wants to live under the law or Torah in order to be justified made right with God. Anyone who is trying to be justified right or made right with God by Torah, the law, this is always going to be their experience. Whether you are a non-Christian, an unbeliever, or a believer, <coughs> or something else, any time we place ourselves <coughs> under Torah, we have the experience that Paul is talking about here. We cannot get away from that. And let me say this. This also applies to people who are trying to make others live under the law, under Torah. The very thing they are trying to do to get them to live under Torah, they're getting the exact opposite results. We've all experienced that. We experience it with ourselves. But then if we've done it, if we're doing it to others, how difficult that is to make happen. So we have to look at this passage in context. And so we'll go back to chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. There we go. The context of this is all about the weak and the strong. It, he, he doesn't change from that. It just runs from chapter 1 1 to the very end, chapter 16. He's speaking to those, the weak, in this group. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as as he lives. Now he gives us illustration. He says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress though she is joined to another man. So it's just an illustration. This isn't any great teaching on divorce, an illustration about what he's trying to say. Next slide. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Paul just brings out here again the two realms, the two ways of life. There are just two ways of life. For all of humanity, there's the way of the law of sin and death, in the way of the law of Christ and grace and justification. And he says here, we can now, because we have died like that woman's husband, we have died to sin, and now we are completely free to live God to serve him in the newness of the spirit not in the letter not according to the laws but according to serve according to the spirit go to the next slide what shall we say then is the law sin here's this other member last week he said what shall we say Should we sin that grace may abound? And it says the same thing, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So Paul just goes on again, and, and he repeats it. He says, look, the law is good. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with the Torah. That is not the issue. The issue is sin. So Paul starts talking about coveting. And, and we look at this, and we think, okay, this must have been Paul. Oh, Paul's telling us his difficult thing. This is what he struggled with it. That may or may not be the case, but it's much more subtle than this. So this is my two-minute Bible geek time. There are three or four of you I know who like the Bible geek stuff, because <laughs> you've told me. The rest of you, oh well. <laughs> so we go back to the speech and character thing. Paul has done this once before. We looked at and he's going to do it again. Verse 9. And I was once alive apart from the law. I wanna ask this question. Was Paul ever apart from the law? No. He was born into the law. He was circumcised on the eighth. Read what Paul says about himself and the law, like in Philippians. He's like, I followed the law above anybody else. Every little detail of it, I accomplished. I'm going to show you what this, what Paul's doing here, this is another creation narrative. Paul is going back to Genesis in this whole chapter, it's all about Genesis. Look what it says next but when the command came sin became alive we talked about that a few weeks ago <coughs> sin became alive and then he says and i died and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me for the sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the key in this is, is verse 11 where the word deceive me is only used a few times in the New Testament. Paul uses it about five times. and But where it first shows up is in Genesis chapter 3 verse 13 in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And it's Eve says that the Lord Comes down, to talking to Adam and Eve after they ate of the fruit. He said, What did you do? And he said, oh, the, the serpent deceived me. And I ate of it. And then we go to these verses here. But I am afraid, in 2 Corinthians, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by its craftiness, your it mind should be led astray with simplicity, period of devotion to Christ. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgressions. So we're going to go back. I'm not going to look at Genesis here, but here's the creation story in chapter 2 and chapter 3. First thing that happens is God creates Adam, human, in chapter 2. He creates human Adam. And the second thing that happens is he plants a garden. In Eden. The third thing that happens is he puts the human in the garden to cultivate it. So there is this period of time where humanity had no law. We don't know how long that period of time was, it was <laughs> really short. There was no law. Do you know what happens right after? God puts Adam in the garden to cultivate it. God comes down and he says, there's two trees. He gives the command of the two trees, which are in the very center of the garden. And then right after that, They break the command. Really, sin is inevitable. It was always inevitable. It's human. It's what we do. Back to my thesis, my opinion on this. If anyone is trying to be justified, made right before God, By observing Torah, this will be their experience. So what we saw is Torah is holy and good. It is the standard. And it is a holy and good standard. But its purpose is to, or its might say its function, how it functions is to reveal and point out sin, to convict and condemn sin that's how it functions it is however unable to empower us to live righteous just faithful lives totally unable to empower us to not sin so we watched the granddaughters Thursday and driving home, and you could ask Cindy. I like to drive the speed limit, or at least really close to it. Think of speed limits on seventy-one. How much power do they have with those signs? Almost none.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so while we were going, I I. I've been feeling guilty ever since I had the the cruise set at 72. (laughs) And all of a sudden there's a police up there. And I slowed that down to 70. But you know, there's, there's just no power in that. Really, all, all the law does it's you know, it's just kind of simple, but, you know, don't think of a pink elephant. I don't want anyone here to think of a pink elephant. What do you do? You know, it's like telling a, a, a junior high kid, you know, don't do this. And all you say is, don't do that. It's not good for you. Okay. What are they going to do? <laughs> do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're going to go do it. That's kind of how the law works. Now, if we go to the next slide. Therefore, that which is good, become a cause of death for me may it never be. Rather it was sin nor that might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. That through the commandments sin might become utterly sinful for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold into bondage and sin. So practical how do we today live under the law and what does it look like for us Sure, not like them. You know, we're not all, you know, worried about circumcision and, you know, not eating certain foods and all of that kind of stuff. But we still, as Christians, find our ways to live under the law. Now, I'll just throw out a few. First one is when we believe, trust in our moral record to gain God's favors and blessings. We are living under the law. Tim Keller has a really good book. Many of you have probably read it. We have did a small group on this called The Prodigal God. He has a great explanation. He's talking about the elder son, the older son in the story. And the, you know, the, the one son we know is a sinner, right? He goes out and he lives this, which we say, oh, yeah, that's a really sinful life. But the older son may be the worst. And what does he do? You know, the, the, the young son comes back, father throws a party, he doesn't come in. And as far as the father comes out, to, why aren't you here? He said, and his, his, he says this, I never disobeyed a command of yours. Paul, <clears throat> I never disobeyed a command of yours. And he says, I slaved for you here on this farm. You never threw me a party. And Tim Keller says, the older son was every bit as lost as the younger son, but he was lost because of his moral goodness. It was his moral goodness that caused caused him to be lost. If obedience or service feels like duty and slavery, we are under the law. We are trying to live under Torah. Henry Nouwen says it this way. He says we live as, we, as if we are God's employees. Empl- Performance-based compensation. Have you ever done that? you think thinking, you know, it's this employment, you know, performance-based compensation with God, instead of living as a beloved child whose status and position is not based on performance, but on what? Relationship to the father. So with the grandkids, the girls, they love dancing. You know, we didn't really do that so much with, with the boys. But they love dancing. And Grandpa is not a dancer. <laughs> Actually, though, the little one likes that the best because I really just do silly things that when I try to dance. And it's, you know, so she just oh, we get to be silly, <laughs> like Grandpa. <laughs> yeah. We were dancing to the, the songs of Simba, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. And and you know, because he was the son, he would be the king. Any other reason? None. One reason. He was the son, so he could be the king. And, And we need to see ourselves that way. There's the only reason. It's because we are beloved children. that's it. Second thing would be stop seeking victory over sin. Start seeking God. That sounds kind of nuanced, but the goal is Jesus, not victory. When you find Jesus, you find victory. And, And that is simple, But it is a trap to be overly focused on victory. It is a trap to put so much of our attention on that. Because it just takes our attention off Jesus. So turn your attention to Jesus. You are dead to sin in Jesus. Not in your actions or your hard work, but in Jesus and the third thing, let's mention this briefly because we'll get into a little bit more next week, is if, if you find yourself with resentment towards others who aren't doing enough or doing it right, but yet still being blessed, you're feeling like this is unfair, well, you're probably living under the law, under Torah, I had Marianne, we go to the next slide. I had Marianne stop with verse 24 on purpose. It says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. Now we can read 25 together. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the only answer to this dilemma, Paul is saying. Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Now if we go to the next slide, the final slide here, Romans 8. And it says one through four, but I took three and four out. We'll look at those next week.
0: There is therefore,
1: this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. How much? Zero. What things we need to learn to live without judgment, without condemning ourselves? The question is, what things do you condemn yourself for? Maybe it's a specific sin that you struggle with. Or maybe it's a besetting sin, something you continually struggle with. How much condemnation should you have for that zero? Here's another one, past failures. Not sins, but just failures. Human failures. We do that a lot. Let me give you some examples that maybe or maybe you can't relate to, parenting failures. Not sins, parenting failures. How much do we condemn ourselves, all of us, I'm sure, who are parents, for parenting failures? I think regret and condemnation somehow are connected in many ways. How about decision failures? You know, there's so many decisions, that, and all of us had some. it's like, there's so much regret. It's not like we were trying, doing anything evil. It just was an awful decision. It could have caused all kinds of issues. They can cause guilt and no from God. No guilt, judgment, condemnation from God. Failure to act decisively. Failure because of overreaction too decisively. We fall on both sides. Failure to say something. Failure to say too much (laughs) things. Close just with this. You can think of your own. In this battle, in the two realms, the laws, (laughs) sin and death, In the law of life in Christ. The outcome has already been determined. The victory is already won. And next week we're going to look in chapter 8 at how to maintain that victory consistently. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Or are we, this, just the human story. You know the human story. He wrote it. And the only hope in the human story is, is the real human. Jesus, the one who became human, that we might be made right with God through his death and his resurrection. In your name we pray.